You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. It's the Land and Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And now we're getting back into some more management. It's kind of like I, I just got the, the urge to just kind of lean back in a recliner, kick your feet up, and be like, all right, we're getting settled in. To, this is Habitat Management season. We're here. For sure. And, and, you know, we're still in – we're still in uh, – today, when when this releases, it's the last day of alternative season or muzzleloader season here in Missouri. And it's been a heck of a couple of weeks with the temperatures and the hunting – um, but I can't help, but as I'm sitting in the stand go, okay, what do we got on our plate now? What are, what management practices, what are we going to be doing on the farms now? It's kind of like, I mean, with the start of every, every year, you know, the whole culture society of, with people involved, it's like, okay, well, what, what, what am I getting into this year? What's new for me this year? How can I improve? What should I not do? And I think that's why, like, it's such an exciting time of year because there's so many opportunities to be able to get into. And that's why we're diving headfirst into more habitat management related topics at this time of the year. Because, again, this is going to get you going in the right direction to make improvements based on what you saw this past season and go forward and improve things, not only in your property, but hopefully for others as you share this and get it out there. Um, but it's just a, it's a fun time of year. I like it for a lot of reasons. You know, this January, February, March has been typically when we get most of our work done for the year. For or, sure. Or, or a lot of the main work, like the majority, the priority of our work. Um, for us, it's always been timber stand improvement and prescribed fire. Yeah. And to me, that's in a lot of the land we see, that's kind of the biggest bang for your buck well i think i think about okay in a day when you're prioritizing things we can burn over 100 acres in a day no problem that's an impact on 100 acres yeah. or more and tsi you can cover multiple acres in a day when you're doing food plots you might be hopping from plot to plot and you're you know you're making a little you're making a dent three four acres possibly but 100 acres man this this is a large window for us to be able to make a big impact, and it's time to roll up some sleeves and get after it. Absolutely, and that's exactly what today's podcast is, is prescribed fire. Woo! Before we do that, we just want to warn you, kind of this is the disclaimer, to any time you're using prescribed fire, you need to be extremely cautious, talk to local sheriffs, office or as fire we always call the fire departments you want to be properly trained um there's a you lot of be, state agencies properly trained there's a lot yeah. of state agencies well that's not true you're not properly trained well <laughs> that's totally a joke by the way i'm just trying to bug matt here because 
I don't know. Did you ever work for a state agency that had to do a bunch? Of, you're from the East Coast, so you don't well, have to do. I did. I did. I worked for, um, it was actually the state park system, and we were doing a burn on a large area around Lake Anna, Virginia, that they burn every, um, I think it's every two years. Um, so I had, I had training, but I don't want people to get the impression, oh, I watched a video on YouTube or, or I listened to a podcast. This, that's not the training that we're talking about. You need to go get hands-on training with professionals, with, you know, state agencies, go and enroll in classes. We'll have links listed and posted, um, with this podcast that will help guide you, get that, get you in contact with those people to get the right training. Absolutely. I got you a little flustered when I said that, didn't I? Well, I had to go back and think. That's been a long time ago. <laughs> I can't remember anything in the first place. I'm like, wait a second. Hold up here. For me, I worked for the Missouri Department of Conservation during a time when there was several pyros in that department, in that region where I worked. So we burned pretty much every day, it seemed like. Every day you could burn for months two months where I remember getting home so late and I think my vehicle reeked of smoke for months on end where we were burning um, public land. So lots and lots of fire, but that's our disclaimer. Make sure you have the proper training and you've consulted with a, with a basically in your area, maybe it's a forest or the state department agency um, that, that helps with that. And a lot of times you know, here in Missouri, there's government programs to help offset costs for prescribed fire. And actually, there's a lot of really good programs here and in, in other states. Incredible programs, not just with prescribed fire, but building fire line, which will help act as a road around your property. You get paid to do that. You get cost um, sharing options for prescribed fire. So what was um, potentially an incredible you know, a large amount of money to burn a, a, a large portion of timber or grassland, whatever it may be, um, is now a, extremely affordable. And if you hire the right people to do it, you may not have to get the training, but it's a matter of committing to using prescribed fire on your property, however, however you may choose, whether you do it or hire it out. So it, it's just that it's an incredible tool that needs to be used and is currently underutilized. Yeah. And going back on that training, uh, there's a like MDC, Missouri Department of Conservation. They actually have classes for mm -hmm. landowners to come to. And, and I'm sure and I, I'm almost certain there's other states that do that as well. So yeah, yeah. keep that in mind before you ever even think about dropping a match or buying a drip torch and setting the woods on fire. So it's a big responsibility. That's for sure. Absolutely. And so I don't know about your notes, Matt, but I first step as always when it comes to prescribed fire. What do you got? I've got, let's just dive into an overview of prescribed fire. Let's talk about it, hopefully educate a little bit on just it as a tool, its history in the landscape, and then from there we can go into more specific things um, that we'll cover later on the podcast. So for me, prescribed fire, before we ever even step foot on this continent, it was here. It was present. It was occurring. It didn't take man to drop a match or go to a class for it to happen. And that's how it's basically a regulatory system for the entire landscape or for landscapes where prescribed fire could persist on a typical basis. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't happen every year. Historically, there was two disturbances. There yep. was grazing and there was fire. Mm -hmm. And grazing is kind of real spotty now. 
fire is almost non-existent in a lot of places. And so <laughs> I, it, we're so far removed from what's natural. But for me, it's always a, you look at the fire and, and there's a reason why it was used um, and, and occurred naturally, whether it was a lightning strike or whatever. And it's so just fantastic for the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became so fantastic that, that Native Americans, they, they, they began to it. set the, the prairies and the grasslands and the woods and savannas on fire. They knew what happened after fire. So once they realized that, it's like, hey, let's help this along. Let's do this. If, if you know, fire didn't happen in an area that it needed it to, they'd burn it. Yep. Because it was such a valuable tool. And again, we know that it's not hardly ever used in the landscape anymore. Yet, when we go to a property and look at a property, it's like, oh my gosh, this is begging for fire. This is begging to have this management tool in place. Um, and, I, and I think why it's, it's become so less used, there's, there's many reasons. But one of the most um, obvious reasons is that Right now, much of the landscape has changed so much that people are so fearful to even use it. Like they they see thick woods and like, oh my gosh, I would burn the whole woods down if I mm-hmm. did it. But that's not what that area likely should have been. It shouldn't have well, been completely forested and mismanaged timber and so on and so forth. Like it's it's basically to me where we're at. It's like a continual. I'm so far out of the game in this area that I don't know if. I should even be using prescribed fire. Well, there's a couple things on why people don't burn anymore. One, we're honestly we're in a society where we're kind of sue happy. Mm-hmm. So the oh, fact yeah. that you're gonna maybe jump the jump the fire line and burn your neighbors could leave into could lead into a lawsuit. Then you look at the news and California's absolutely torched. burning torched up and everybody's so scared of fire there's so and many then economic we have the, losses uh, associated with it and and loss of life but there's it, there's that's an extreme and then well it is an extreme but that's what you see on the news so that's mm-hmm. what everybody associates fire with yep. and then you've got the smoky the bear campaign where only you can help prevent forest fires and that's been taken to the extreme of well we shouldn't have any forest fires Yes. And so that has led to the years and years of people not burning. And now we're in the state that we're in. And and prescribed fire in its name is is not a forest fire. It is, hey, I'm planned. I'm ready. I have a burn plan. I have fire lines in place. I know under these conditions that this is going to happen. And I'm going to burn it. It's going to be under control. And it's meant to happen because I'm prescribing it it's not it, you know there's there's a much bigger difference between prescribed fire and wild and forest fires yeah so and we'll we'll share some numbers later that kind of let you know what the numbers would be like in california versus what we're looking for when we're burning sure so and i think now it's important to say okay i understand fire's natural it's good we don't use it anymore but what does it do? Like, why why is it so good? What does fire do as a as a management tool to the habitat? To me, it's when we shared the numbers a couple weeks ago. It was young forest 
and then Young Force with fire. Mm-hmm. And you saw that there was like a 500-pound pound increase. Difference. Um, and that right there is just an example of, of, of the benefits of fire. You basically get more food available. Um, there's more younger growth within reach of the wildlife. Um, and it may not even be it, – it's either forage or cover. Um, to me, it's almost like p- trying to picture – as time goes on, there's there's food on the table, and the next year it's it's on the shelf, and then the next year it's at the ceiling, and it becomes out of reach yeah, for, it's the, on the, for roof. the wildlife. Then it's on the roof, <laughs> and then it's in the tree out, out front. It just slowly works its way out of reach. And then slowly you move away from that because you can't get to it. Yeah. You, you stop using that area to feed. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what happens with without fire mm-hmm. with Lack young of forest management. with young forest or basically it's a field and then it turns into young forest and then it turns into um, a little bit older forest and then slowly it becomes closed canopy or out of reach if you have a if you have a clear cut you know yeah you, you were once wooded you go back you clear cut it seven to ten years later you're back into a closed canopy forest setting where the sun doesn't get back to the forest floor the 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 trees the saplings have come back and completely closed off that canopy and and we look at that as society look at that and say oh that's young forest but it's actually not even it's the same benefit as a 200 year old closed canopy forest well generally there's there's a mixture of of some stuff that may be getting, you know, some briar still mixed in, but that's it's that rapidly even declining. In close canopy though, rapidly declining. Like you know, I read, not to get off topic, but you know how I'm reading the Explorer. Yeah, he was talking about, and this is the Missouri Explorer in 1818, traveling and seeing prairies rolling right end of creeks. You know what I found interesting? He talked about climbing through brambles, green briar, grapevine, mm-hmm. thick. Thick, thick to where he, well, he, he was trying to go through it on a horse and he had to reroute because it was so thick. Wow. I didn't expect that. I was no, like, I, I really I expected really have... more fires, but, and then cane mixed in. So grapevine, mm-hmm. cane, and uh, greenbrier, which is pretty much occurring today in a lot of the edge of the creeks where he's at. Oh, yeah, but for sure. Anyway, not to get off topic, but I was That's just bit one of those things you're that. like reading, like, wow, that thick? I didn't. Yeah, I, I was kind of blown away. I'm like, mm-hmm. huh. so anyway, I learn something new every day. But in in regards back to the prescribed fire and what it does and what that means for you know a person who has property or or if you're even a, a person who hunts public ground and you're like, okay, I see the state burned this or it caught fire. What does that mean for me when I'm out there hunting? Like, is it a good? Is it a positive? Is it a negative? And not all depends on. Okay, how recent was the fire? You know, what intensity, you know, how has the forest or the area responded to that fire? So on and so forth. But what we can say is, without a doubt, it brings more food to an area. It adds cover. And as a hunter, I want to key into those areas. It's more productive. It's a productive landscape for multiple reasons. And at the right times of the year... Those areas offer so much benefit, and I want to know about them. I want to hunt around them. I want to use that to my advantage instead of being fearful of the fact that, oh, gosh, a fire ran through here. Yeah. I, you know, yesterday I was, I was hunting with a couple of MDC employees, and we talked about patch burn grazing at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
and the radio collaring Bob White quail yeah. that they were doing. And we were kind of talking about <laughs> historically, go figure, yeah. um, that the buffalo would graze or follow the fires. After the fire went through, there was this huge flush of new growth, and that's a, a lot where the buffalo yeah. focused. But then right behind the buffalo were bob white quail, grouse, prairie chickens, things like that, because they followed that disturbance. Yep. And when they radio collared these bob white quail and they followed this patch burn grazing, they just followed right behind the cows. Basically, the habitat, the cattle or the, the bison at the time, improved the habitat so the quail could come through and feed and have the right cover because it was it was grazed at a certain level. Well, th- that the trails. And also that the fire then brought in this flush of growth, which brought in insects, which mm-hmm. brought in the food base for the quail, oh, yeah. and as well as the manure bringing in flies and other insects, too. Yeah. So, but it, all, it all works together. It, it all, it's amazing. It all works so intricately together. Like, it's so, there's so many fine details. Even just looking at the bobwhite quail yesterday that we killed, it was just like, I haven't even actually looked at a wild bobwhite quail in, in years because there aren't that many. Mm-hmm. And it just everything is so perfectly put together. Oh, their patterns of um, on their feathers, it's so detailed. It's incredible. That's what we, you know, bird watchers, they love seeing the bright colored mm-hmm. indigo bunnings or whatever. But, and a bobwhite quail looks just brown with a white until head. Until you get it in your hand. Until you get it in your hand, you're like, oh my goodness. Well, the same thing, thing with is- like a mallard. You're yeah. like, oh, it's just a gray and got some green there, but it's iridescent green. You've got pa- it's not actually gray. It's like gray, white, and black, but it's so detailed and so thin when you get it in your hands. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. This is amazing. And their feet are so orange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but when you look at fire on the landscape, it's it's just to me as I've as Matt and I always talk, it's the reset button. Yep. We were looking for an analogy earlier today, kind of like, okay, well, here's kind of what I came up with. Well, here's kind of what I came up with. And and in a reset button, we determined or we, we, we thought it's kind of like a haircut. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, okay, I grow my hair out. It grows. And, and that's vegetation. Regardless if you're even thinking about it, it's still growing. Yeah. It's It's growing. It's maturing. In yeah, a, in forest landscape, it's getting annoying. It's making you sweat more. Yeah, but what do you do? It's getting harder to control. Oh, good one there. It's getting harder to control. So, what do you do? What is your reaction to manage to maintain your hair at the right level for you? What do you do? Haircut. Haircut. That's your that's your reset button for the growing hair and to maintain it at a certain level that is works for you. And that's the same thing with habitat. Yeah. If well, let's go in a little more depth on that haircut, okay. though. As it gets, as it gets, I'm trying to really connect this with with the fire and and let's just say saplings and, and sure. young forests. It gets a little longer and a little longer, and you start getting mats in it. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just being honest. So or you it start starts, getting it starts mats. to get curly. Or really curly, and and now your normal shears or trimmers won't work so you have to get a little more aggressive with a little more you basically have to do multiple steps to get it back to the state in which it needed to where be. it's controlled yes where you can control it with the simple act of trimmers yep so you have to get a little rough so let's just say you get some 
garden shears. Garden shears. <laughs> so like that's been ten ugly, years down the road. An ugly pair of scissors, yeah. and you're like, you just kind of start whacking and cutting, and you just you kind of get it back to shape, but it's not quite there. That's you, the same. You thing thin with, it out. You thin it out, but it's not under the same. It's still not under, under control. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's improved, but it's still it could be better. And there's another be practice in which we could use to. Boom, get it right back into where it needs to be. So you've trimmed it with the shears, and you finally get it back. Now you can bring the, the trimmers back in and, mm-hmm. and reset it. Same is true with, let's just say, a cutover glade or uh, an oak savanna. And over time, you've got a few more saplings, a few more stump sprouts, and they're growing and maturing and you send a fire through there and you reset it. You knock them back. And now they're suppressed. Suppressed back to one foot high or two foot high. But at, over time, that keeps growing, continuing to grow. And you skip a fire or skip a rotation every three years. It goes six years now. It goes six years. Now you have this tree that's grown for six years um, from the ground. And now that fire is not going to be able to control it or knock it back. So then you have to bring in the tree shears that we talked about. Maybe that's a chainsaw or a mm-hmm. grind, a or bobcat with a grinder. Yep. And you have to put in more work, more money to control that. And that's basically what's happened when you remove the fire. And then if you don't bring in a fire for six years and you let it go another three years, now you've got even taller, so it may take even more work to get it back in the reset button. And, and 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 another analogy that we went with, okay, well, and we'll get into like, okay, does fire control this invasive? Does it control this? At what state can fire be used here? We'll get into that. But now let's talk about herbicide for just a quick second. If we use herbicide, if if we use that to help control things, what would that look in this analogy? And let's say you do have that just nasty you know, thick head of hair and it's overgrown and it's disgusting and you want complete reset. If you were to do a broad spectrum, which we don't prescribe, wouldn't prescribe, but if you were to just go herbicide the entire thing, you'd be bald. Yeah. What what it does is that actually it kills that tree. Fire in most instances, and especially when we're talking about a prescribed fire, we're not going and killing trees. We're just simply resetting because it's not going to destroy the root system. Whereas herbicide would go to the root system, in most instances, and and terminate that tree completely. Yes. Fire. So here's my comments on that. All the years of burning, I've never really seen, 99% of the time, I've never seen a fire completely kill a tree. Now mm-hmm. you're going, what's your definition of kill? Because I've seen it top kill trees to where... Everything on top is dead. The leaves are burned off. It's charred. That tree, that what we see, a trunk, leaves, stems, limbs, is dead. But the roots are still alive. Yes. So then you get stump sprouts. So one trunk turns into 12 little sprouts coming off of that. That tree is not actually dead. The top part is dead. We've top killed it. So the fire... Although the fire worked top killing, it didn't actually kill that tree. And I've seen studies with the MDC where we've tried to send head fires and raging fires, almost red flag days, through a grove of native grass that has these saplings in it 
and we've top killed him, but we've never actually killed that tree. You, you think so of- if you want to kill that tree, herbicide is required, but mm-hmm. more on a spot treatment. Yeah, you, it's like it's like fighting gray hairs. You don't go in and completely dye all your hair. You would go in and you would spot treat those areas that have the most grays. Maybe it's your sideburns. That's like herbicide. You just go in and specifically hit those areas to control them, to get them back to a state where you're happy, where they're they're colored, they're not gray. And that's what you would. That's how you would basically use herbicide in an area. You'd spot treat it. Um, and even then we don't, I would rather see some saplings and shrubs mixed I, in. I don't mind them. But no. if we're looking at a landscape or an area that's just completely taken over with saplings, then I would go in and, sure. and treat those areas with Because herbicide. a fire wouldn't go through there. Yes. It's the mixture of the grasses, the forbs, everything that help control those saplings because there's more, there's more, um, fuel for it to burn yeah and and, it, and set those saplings back with each sapling that you see the reason for them being reset or you want to keep the fire in the landscape is as they grow they're shading out more underneath mm-hmm. so there's less vegetation growing which means less fuel growing and so if you see these areas where it's a five foot wide circle of saplings over time that gets to 10 foot wide and that's a 10 foot area that Probably won't carry a fire through it. Or or a not enough fuel in there to control those saplings. It's kind of like a void, and then from there it gets bigger and bigger. It's what we talked about last week with the or two weeks ago with the cedars. You know, underneath they shade out everything. A fire can't actively get to that trunk and and control that tree because there's nothing growing underneath of it. So you've got to have that diversity of of grasses, um, brambles and forbs. With interspersed saplings, saplings are going to happen. It's just a, it's just a a fact of um, an area recolonizing. But that's where the prescribed fire comes into into uh, hand there and controls them. So yeah. ho- hopefully that analogy was good and kind of gave a perspective on that's why and how we use it's prescribed a re- fire. It's a reset button. Yeah, exactly. And basically, the reset button means. The food is now brought back to the table mm-hmm. and not put on the ceiling, not put on the roof. It's right there in front of them. Right there for them to use. And I just, I love it. I love I'm a it. pyro, so you know me. I love fire. So what's next? That's what? basically a broad <clears throat> scale of the benefits of fire and why we, why we want to introduce that. Now we realize that some states don't allow it. That's a that'll be another podcast in itself. But this shame week, on you. <laughs> yeah, call your representative and and your uh, government people. Just share to the podcast with them. Start trying to get them to understand the benefits of it. And going on from that, we we recognize right now, and the reason we're doing this podcast is because very few people talk about it. Very few people share information about fire. And we need to cover, and there's so much to cover. Fire is such an intricate beast, and there's so many different um, topics we could talk about. We could talk about fire lines. We could talk about dormant season versus growing season fires. We could talk about um, backing versus head fires, burning the timber versus grasses, all these different things. Um, and we're going to we're going to do that and cover them. Um, but honestly, each one of those topics really needs its own podcast because it is so intricate. This is a, a multi-podcast Multi-step. Topic. Prescribed fire, we're not going to cover it all in one day. No. 
We'd be one here thing for that you just brought up or kind of triggered something in my head is in this landscape we in society we don't really use fire a lot but you look at the east coast what do they deal with a lot in the east coast lyme disease high tick populations and i mean that's just when we don't burn timber what do we get matt we get layers and layers and layers and layers of of leaf litter that's tick habitat it is you look out west and we have catastrophic fires where they haven't used fire for years. And so we have years and years and years of fuel of grasses and shrubs growing, junipers growing, and no fire. And so it gets to a point where we have tons of fuel. It gets super dry. We get a lightning strike. And now we've just got a humongous landscape that's ready to be ripped. Yeah. And those two analogies, those two references basically are what has occurred due to what lack we're of, dealing with a lack of management and and one of the other things is you know we you talked about it, you brought it up the whole tick um in relation to prescribed fire does does prescribed fire really help with reducing tick populations so on and so forth that's a question we're we're going to get to and from this point on we want to we we made a post on on our Facebook page a while back about prescribed fire, common things, common questions that people have regarding it. And that's a good way for us to be able to introduce this topic, and then from from after this podcast, go into the the very specific things. But one person was asking, "Hey, does does fire help reduce tick populations?" And and what we found, and research we've done, and talking with other people is in an area. That is high tick population. If you're looking to control and reduce the number of ticks in an area with prescribed fire, what they found is that it will temporarily reduce the number of ticks. And you're like, okay, cool. Temporarily, you know, I, I'm going to use prescribed fire um, on my property from from here on out. I'm going to burn uh, multiple areas, and and that's great. That's awesome. We certainly um, encourage you to do that. But it's 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 a temporary fix, and the reason why it would guess it would be a temporary fix is let's think about this for a second. If we if we have a property and we set it up into three different burn units, we burn each one every single year. We know that deer, a host for ticks, even though we're removing and killing nymphs and we're killing adult stage ticks because we're removing that habitat and honestly just burning them up mm-hmm. in a fire. What we also know is that there is going to be a flush a resurgence of vegetation that deer host for ticks are going to key into. So now that now there's, you basically took uh, an area that had great tick habitat, completely removed it. And now what's going to happen is bringing the host back. You're bringing the host right back into that area. And I hope that my analogy wasn't taken for small scale. I was talking big picture. Yes. Yes. That's so, why I went right right into it so we can talk about it. That's why you gave me that look when I started going into it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what is he giving me this look for? <laughs> I, I'm talking big picture here. So, yeah. So, now we've we had a void of no tick habitat, but now we're bringing ticks back in because we're 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 encouraging the host to come back and feed on this new vegetation. And this is again why, hey, don't don't look at that as a discouraging thing. You know, we temporarily reduced them um and Every year we're going to be we're going to be removing tick habitat. We're going to be disrupting life stages for ticks in an area. But 
it's just it's just a matter of this is what the research has shown. We can do it. We can reduce them. It's going to be temporary. However, if if more people are getting on board with this, that's that's more acres that are less and less. We're basically reducing ticks. And another thing is, if you have high deer density in an area, you have more hosts for ticks to be on. So that goes back into okay. Now we got to look at herd management to reduce ticks. The more hosts there are, the more ticks there can be. So if your deer numbers way out of whack and you want to reduce possums. Grow more possum. That's right. They eat ticks. Um, but we, you know, that's just something we need to look at too. If we need to reduce the number of of hosts out there, if you have too many ticks, it's it's not. Well, prescribed fire isn't going to you know do all the magic for you. It's a multi step thing. To me, I think of the east where Lyme's dis- Lyme oh, disease I've is such a problem. Tested you see, multiple times for you it. see how thick lack of fire mm-hmm. everything is just thick leaf litter high deer populations urban deer populations well, and, the, and you think you think of the dogs all the pets and stuff that oh, are out there too gosh, yeah so many hosts out there for ticks and unmanaged timber heavy heavy duff layer yeah it, it's bad yep i'm again I, I think i've gotten tested twice when i was out there i haven't gotten tested out here yet but your brother's gotten it yeah he's um, been tested yeah, and mm-hmm. I know I've got. And he had a, I think he actually had a tick-borne illness last mm-hmm. year, but yeah, I not mean, me though. They don't bite me. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so anyhow, that that's the the quick info on the the prescribed fire, fire and and reducing tick populations. Mm-hmm. So that there's another that benefit question. to it. There we go. What is something? <clears throat> Well, I guess we are we are really did cover kind of the benefits of okay you know if you're burning the timber or if you're burning old field or prairie not many people have prairie but if you're if you're one of those people who has some old field and you do want to burn it what's the first thing that they can kind of really experience like all of a sudden you've got a bunch of cover or you've got timber um, with a bunch of leaves on it what what can we expect to boom immediately come back with with fire like. We we've kind of vaguely said food, but let's let's throw out a couple species that typically this is what's going to occur when we're burning. To me, early secession. I hope that's what you're going for. I don't know if you're looking for species, yes, specific species, but early secessional growth. You're going to see a lot of in our area. You've got pokeberry, um, blackberry, blackberry, yeah, ragweed, could... beggar's lice, all that. Partridge pea is Ooh, a, that's a huge one. Yeah. And so um, to me, you're looking at all these species that are, are fantastic for wildlife, not just deer, but turkeys, quail, songbirds. They grow and <laughs> I, I, you, as they gathered by now, while they're growing, they're great food. But as they mature, they're great cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and here's one of the other things that, and I know we're going to talk about it deeper, deeper into another podcast, but... I think there's a misconception that I want to clear up when we're talking about burning and burning in closed canopy forest. The mm. benefit of of burning is great. You get a, an extreme flush of new vegetation during the spring and early spring. It comes back quickly. But what we can't forget is that, hey, you're still in a closed canopy forest. So even though you get a flush of green first right off the bat, after a fire, it comes up, you get, you know, 6, 12, 14 inches of, of vegetation regrowth. 
then the leaves start to bud and you get leaf out and then there goes your sunshine to me that analogy of of burning and closed canopy forest is like going to the gym and still eating junk food (laughs) yeah yeah it's a little bit of a fix but it's you're not solving the problem yeah i work out but i eat a pack of oreos every night i had a cheeseburger on the way to the gym like yeah that that's the problem is when you see closed canopy forest being burned you get that initial flush of green and it may grow to a foot to two foot, and then the you just leaves. Threw, you just threw a blanket over all of it. You're like, okay, that's enough. No and, more. And as soon as it greens up and leaf foliage comes on the trees, and it's now they're living in the shade, they really stop growing as much. And so, and and a lot of times, if you pushed it back into the fall, the or into the spring, the fire, you get a little bit of growth, and then it's covered up in shade, and it's it, so that, quickly. And then you're left there with. The possibility of erosion problems, too, because now you don't have any leaves. You have very little growth on the ground, but you have close canopy, and you're like, ah, it's a great dirt patch in that timber. But this goes back to the analogy of, okay, for deer habitat and, and a lot of other game species, the habitat, we have to go and we have to go to the shears because, because that closed canopy forest has overgrown for so many years. We have to go mechanically Whoa. remove Whoa. things chainsaw chainsaw timber back. harvest selective cut whatever it may be get the shears out to get back to where now we're using prescribed fire to get to a control area back to the control parameters um where prescribed fire is going to be more beneficial and we've got we've got to keep that in mind that okay even if you have timber great to burn it Great to remove the duff layer, allow some vegetation to come back in, but that's not the only thing that you can do. Don't stop there, basically. You just prioritize for them. Yeah. Should I burn or should I focus on timber management? Well, if you're closed canopy, it's time to get a chainsaw or get a logger in. Yeah. Because that's the first step to getting back to more beneficial habitat. Then one of the other questions is that often comes up, okay, I've got... I've just did a selective cut. I just did a, a big TSI unit, you know, five acres or whatever. I've got a lot of tops on the ground, but Aren't I also I have to burn up the other trees. Is yeah, that where you're going? Exactly. That's that's a very common question. Or you you cut out a cedar glade or a cedar patch, and mm-hmm. there's a few oaks scattered in there mm-hmm. that you don't want to burn up. Yeah. Wait a year or sure. It, basically, with those cedars, it won't take very long. A year, and those needles will be off there. And you can have a lot more better. I, I don't like using the word controlled with fire because yeah. no matter what, no matter what your plan is, it, it's never completely under control um, or the possibility of it throwing an ember across. But you have a better chance at keeping it contained sure. if you let those. Now, I will say that is a fun fire. Oh, yeah. Not to right. burn cedar thickets after, not long after you they've been cut. You can hear it coming. But I love that. I wouldn't advise that. No. I would let them sit and let those needles fall off first. Or if it's a, if it is a small area, or or you've got one or two trees, don't drop those cedars in the direction of the tree. Make mm-hmm. sure you've got you know around that canopy of that tree. You want to save. There's no cedars underneath it. Pull them back a little bit, and then and then let a fire go through there. They won't burn it up. And then when it comes to a logged uh, hardwood stand that's been mm-hmm. logged, there's there's tops. We don't ever send a head fire through the timber. No, no. And so it's always a backing fire. And, and a lot of times, even in timber, you're going to have patches that don't burn real great. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know if this is this week's podcast or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. A lot of times when we're burning timber, it's in the spring, yeah. not necessarily growing season because growing season fires, you have a better chance at top killing trees, damaging trees. And some so, and the conditions, which we'll get into, are make it tougher to burn in, in the growing season in our area specifically. Mm-hmm. And timber areas, yeah, for sure. So, so anyway. I just wanted to make that disclaimer of if you're burning in, pers- in, in closed canopy forest, it can get better. Don't just stop there if you've already started prescribed fire or if you're looking to manage that closed canopy forest, start with the cut. Get yeah. in there. Yeah. Because you'll see that, okay, I'm not stopping at maybe two foot tops of growth. If I have open canopy or more open canopy, a savanna or a woodland type canopy, I'm going to experience continual growth with that great species at ground level where deer and turkey can utilize them throughout the entire growing season. It's like, oh, here's here's three weeks, guys. Get what you can, and then yeah. screw you. You're done as the canopy just closes off. It's like a tease. It, it, it really is like a tease. That's why burning closed canopy is just, it's kind of a... a, a it's not a mute point, but it's like, hey, come on. We can do better, guys. Yeah. We can do better than this. Yeah. Uh, it's eating a cheeseburger on the way to the gym. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then stopping for the milkshake on the way back. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, hopefully that 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 is one thing that we see a lot in, uh, with with our work and just driving across the landscape is you see people burning and they're like, oh, okay, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm But it's really just... It's it's not that great of a fix. I would much rather cut some species of trees that aren't providing any value. Get those shears out. Do that yeah. first to get it to a point where prescribed fire is going to be more beneficial. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. let's talk about conditions to burn. What what do we need to look at for a prescribed fire to be effective? And and basically, what are the parameters in which? Okay, hey, we we want to burn this area. We're we're looking into the spring. We've got we're a week out. Can we burn this week? What are those conditions in which we're looking for to have a successful burn in an area? Because fire, as we know, can change in an instant based on conditions, wind speed, cloud cover, mm-hmm. humidity. That changes throughout a day. That changes by the minute when you're out there on the fire, and you can see a fire react to those changes. So. I know you've got your notes here about the the different things that we look at and everyone else should look at before dropping a match. When it comes to looking ahead, for me, when, when we're trying to schedule, hey, we're burning this day, the fire is so much trying to find the right conditions. It's a window. is very like down to the day of, like mm-hmm. the morning you're looking. But in big scale, you can look and see, is there any rain in the forecast? Is there what days are going to be sunny? What days are there no rain, sunny, low, low wind speeds? Mm-hmm. Okay, that we can kind of in a broad scale say Thursday, Friday, Saturday looks like pretty decent days to burn. Then you get closer to those days. Now you can start looking at the humidity, the Haynes Index. The wind speed, the wind, wind direction. Speed. And then it's like, okay, those now instead of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Friday's the day to burn. Mm-hmm. And then Friday morning you get up and you look at these things. We'll talk about where to go and find this and go, okay, this it, it's the day to burn. Yep. 
But here's how management, and you can look ahead, is, okay, I need to burn this unit, this unit, this unit this year. And that's a total of 50 acres. Go ahead and build those lines now. Oh, you have to. And so instead of when the day to burn is makes it, it and it's that day, you already have the line, everything's ready. So you're building line weeks, months in advance. And, of course, you'll have to walk the line prior to dropping a match and maybe blow out a couple leaves or whatever it may be, check for down trees. But the bulk of the work is done. So when that day does approach, when that day does come and you're ready for it, you, you can go. You can burn. Yes. And that's why, like, for example, we've got a burn unit that we're planning on burning this spring. Um, we're going to go ahead and disc some line around it because it's a, it's a grassy field with cedars, cut cedars in it. So we're going to disc a line around it, get ready, and we're not... We're going to do that in the next two weeks, but the burn is probably not going to happen for another month or two. Mm-hmm. So that's it's just, kind it's of just a preparation. Yeah, you've got to look into the future. Um, now with fire, are you ready for me to go into this? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah. so ahead. when it comes to fire um, and picking the days to burn, there's certain things that you really need to focus on, and I mentioned them a second ago, but um, you need to look at the temperature. That kind of goes into it, but that's not as much as relative humidity, the vent rate, the mixing height, and also the Haynes index. Um, that may sound like Japanese to you, but we're going to break it down and explain exactly what each one is and why would it why it would affect a fire on on each given day and the conditions in which you want to look for. So for me, I always go into the place I always go is the National Weather Service. So just go into Google National Weather Service, go to it, enter your location. So for me, I'll, I'll have a link to that homepage in the okay. notes. Um, put in your, whatever town it is you're close to go there and then you'll see kind of the five day or seven day forecast, maybe 10 day, go to the bottom right, I believe. And and you're looking for the hourly forecast. It's a little chart. Click on that. Once you get to that, you'll see a little table up top and you'll see fire weather. Check all those boxes right in the center of that column. And then hit, I think it's submit or whatever, or refresh. Mm -hmm. And then you scroll down to the bottom, and that's where you can see the Haynes Index and the mixing height. And so, and it gives you a a graph. This is what we honestly use a lot for for hunting, too, because I love how it breaks it down hour by hour by hour and allows you to see the change, if if the wind is going to change, whatever. But this, it'll give it to you in like a, a graph over time. Yeah. And so, first thing I like to look at, is the relative humidity. Now, relative humidity isn't actually the amount of moisture in the air, even though that's the term we use a lot, and that's kind of a a common way to look at it. And so just for ease, that's what we'll say is the amount of moisture in the air. Um, And, and, you know, in the mornings, you know, sometimes I think of the summer and you say, man, the humidity is 100%. Mm -hmm. And And you think of like the dews and stuff that set in overnight. And in the morning, it's like, oh, that's kind of thick. It's like a, a lot of dew out here. Then the humidity's high. Yes. And so when you think of it naturally, just the way it occurs, there's typically more humidity in the mornings and and the humidity increases in the afternoons. So midday, that 2 to 3 o'clock is usually when it's the lowest. Mm-hmm. And that's why when the fire can get crazy during that time. But that's why looking at the weather throughout an entire day and through that graph portion, you have to know what to expect. If you're starting to light at 10 and at 3, you shouldn't be burning, don't burn. 
You can't, and, you don't do that. And for example, so a lot of times, just on average for our area, we're looking at 70 in the morning, dropping down to um, 50s. Rel- percent midday. relative yeah, humidity. Percent relative humidity. Um, when we're burning in the spring, because typically in that January, February, March, humidity drops a lot lower in the afternoons to even sometimes into the teens. Mm-hmm. That's... When it gets into the teens, that's when in our area, green grass will almost burn. Like yeah, that, those are days when we we try not to burn when it's in the teens. We really like it to be in the thirty percent relative humidity Plus to fifty. Yeah, um, thirty to fifty is kind of a, a a good day to burn based on relative humidity, um, and burns everything, but still, we have the ability to keep it contained. The, the conditions aren't like. Oh, you're basically your butt's all puckered up because you're like the wrong gust of wind right here. I, I, I'm I'm fearful right now. You really test the waters. Yes. You almost make us have to put this at what is it explicit or no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's gonna get rated different. Yeah, you almost try to make it get rated different. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with some of your analogies, but that's kind of and when you look at California and it's, and screaming fire. Some a lot of times the relative humidity is in the teens, if not single, single digits. digits. Yeah, and that's when it gets catastrophic. So avoid those days. So relative humidity, thirty to fifty percent. That's what we look for a lot. You and even sometimes you're burning grass, you can get away with sixty percent relative humidity. And a lot of times we'll purposely burn grass fields and such late, late in the day and into the night. Yeah, because that relative humidity is going to increase at those times. And hey, we're good. We're solid. We know it's going to burn the grass, but it's not going to burn into the timber. Exactly. So the next one we look at a lot is Haynes Index. That's basically the lower atmosphere stability. If you Google that, that's pretty much what you'll see. It's the lower atmosphere stability. What, you what, sound, what, you sounded what in the smart. world does that even mean? You sounded smart when you said that. So I didn't stumble through it. So... <laughs> We're looking, uh, Haynes Index is basically on a scale of two to six. Six being high, two being low. Meaning, if it's at a six Haynes Index, we're going to burn. As in, not as in we're going to go out and start burning. Because I don't like to burn grass on days when the Haynes Index is six. I don't want to burn prairie when it's a Haynes Index of six. As in, like, that's like... Uh, that and means, in comparison, when I say we're gonna burn, I mean stuff will burn, 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 burn. Yes, two, you're gonna have trouble. So for me, the five is kind of that magical number, um, four and five actually. So six, we will burn timber in at six, like north slopes where there's typically more moisture. Mm-hmm. East slopes, we can burn on six, but we're still just backing and we're very cautious. And watching those wind speeds and uh, yes. all these other factors. Four, and, and a lot of time I burned on a lot of three days, three mm-hmm. and four days for grass. It still carries fine. Um, doesn't burn as well in the timber. So Haynes Index, look at that, two to six scale, six being high. Another one that is often on the fire weather is the mixing height. Uh, that's basically, think of like the cap or the ceiling on the atmosphere. So if you have a high mixing height... That means smoke's going to get out. It's going to be sucked up into the atmosphere and not set over the landscape. Smoke is 
sometimes just as bad as the actual fire. If you if you light a fire and you have a low ceiling or a low mixing height and the smoke just sits, that's when you can get it going across highways, and mm-hmm. that's when we can get into real trouble. Real or trouble. It's, it goes into town. And sets in an area. Sets. We want a good mixing height. 1,700 or less, we don't re- typically burn on it. We don't recommend that. We, ca- we want a high ceiling. Smoke sucks up into the atmosphere, and it's gone. You Basically, from a long ways away, you can see a plume of smoke in your region going straight up. It's a column going straight up. And getting up into the upper atmosphere, and then the transport winds Jet take stream, it out, yeah. gone. And get that's what here. we're—you know—you drive across Kansas, you're like, "Ooh, look at that smoke column." That's what yeah. we're looking for. Oh yeah. Um, vent rate is basically how high and how far smoke will go. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, it's a—it's a mathematical problem between mixing height and your transport winds. So that's why blah, we, blah, 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 that's why we look at the the graph that tells us what they are. So yeah. We don't have to do the we don't have yeah. to do the mathematical equation. <laughs> so vent rate basically we're just going to see how far the smoke, how high it'll go and how far it'll get out of there. Yeah. So that's what we're looking for. I I think it's important now to say and in relation to the day to burn as we're looking in advance, all these factors, you know, I think it's important to look at the days prior to the day too you want to burn because what really catches and, and carries fire are the fine fuels in an area. Mm-hmm. And because vegetation is porous, like the relative humidity, because it's porous, like moisture can kind of set in those pores. But if you have good days prior to the day you want to burn and good conditions the day you want to burn, then those fine fuels are going to carry fire much better than if the day before you had, let's say, a really high humidity. It still would in those pores of that that vegetation would be holding more moisture. For sure. Yeah. I, I When I say atmosphere stability, too, keep in mind, like when I'm going back to Haynes Index, the atmosphere stability, six being high, that means this, the atmosphere is unstable. That's when you'll see a lot of kind of a, you're on a fire and you're looking, you don't have time to go and look at the Haynes Index on National Weather Service. So you're looking for things this is when you're on a fire line. You're just trying to be aware of your surroundings. Unstable atmosphere, things to look for. Dust devils, fire tornadoes and leaves. So basically you're on a fire line, all of a sudden you see whirlwind looking like dust devils, but it's got leaves that are lit on fire and they're swirling around and they're drifting across the line. We know the atmosphere is very unstable. That's kind of an indicator. So if you're if you're burning grass and you're seeing those indicators, you want to start trying to call off the hounds and wrap this baby mm-hmm. up or you're going to have something get out of control. Yeah. Yeah. You just got, like you said, you have to be very aware of your surroundings. And as we mentioned earlier, fire can change behavior in a fire can change in an instant with, yeah. with the change of winds, with even cloud cover. You can see, you know, oh, if, yeah. if, if you're if you're burning on a on a kind of partly cloudy day, and it's sunny when you light, it's 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 carrying really well, and all of a sudden your fire kind of no 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 it dies down a little bit, so suppresses. Look up, there's probably a cloud over top of the sun, and as soon as that cloud passes back over or past the sun, you'll see that fire respond and kick right back up and get back to where it's carrying really well. That's how quickly things can change and why there's so much precaution and education that's required for you to burn effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Quick story for you. Um, when I was working for the Missouri Department of Conservation, we were doing a fire. Um, it's kind of a mix between woodland and, and, and uh, glade, but it wasn't cedar glade. It was actually cut 
cut cedars um, that had been burned several times. So it was basically just grass and, and timber. We were burning. Predicted relative humidity was 34%. Okay, great. Sounds good. That, it was part, good. partly cloudy. So it was like, okay, well, when the sun's shining, we know we're going to have good fire. Um, and we'll just try to limp along through the clouds. Well, that was for a, a town about an hour away because we were in the middle of nowhere. And as we started burning, the clouds went away, and the fire started getting crazy on us. And the relative and we knew humidity, humidity was dropping, but we didn't know what it was. So we kept trying to call back to the office and get a relative humidity reading. Fire jumped the line, starts burning out across this overgrown field like crazy. We finally get it all contained. In the process, we, I get back to the, my supervisor, and I said, why did the relative humidity drop to? And he said, 11. Boom. And it, so it went from being contained to running around like madmen trying to put a fire out, and it was because the relative humidity dropped so significantly. And and that's the thing where things where you don't typically think will burn will burn at that time at, at those rates and and in an instant again it changed and it changed drastically luckily you guys had enough people to, to yeah. keep it under control and well it was next to it, a lake but... too so we had a good uh oh, we had a, the ability to tie into a yeah. lake so it was all yeah. right but good. if we had we had done that somewhere else it would have been terrible we'd have fought it into the night but mm-hmm. you know when i think of haynes index oftentimes i it's, it has no association with it as far as by definition but look at when you see Haynes index of six, that pretty well tells me that our large fuels are going to burn. So logs, snags are going to catch like gasoline. And that is whenever that's the problem with high Haynes index in your burning is if you have a lot of dead standing snags, they're going to burn. So you have to account for that when you see higher Haynes index. So, Anyway, those are kind of the things. So going back to we have Haynes index, mixing height, vent rate, relative humidity. Those things all really play into factor when we're trying to decide when to burn, when not to burn. Keep in mind, relative humidity, this is kind of you're in a nutshell. Um, relative humidity, you want to really avoid those teens, especially single digits. That's when we can get into catastrophic fires like they see out west. Um, so 30 to 50 range is pretty, pretty good range to shoot for um, you're looking for mixing rates high so that way smoke gets out of there high ceiling rates so 1700 and above is definitely preferably 16 6000 stuff like that to where we know smoke is getting out of there um, Haynes index two to six scale so we're shooting for four and five six if we're trying to burn north slopes east slopes of timber areas that are probably got a lot of moisture in them um, you got anything else? Basically, those are those are the things to look for when trying to decide when to burn. Um, sometimes one other thing we look into is we're going to burn this big area, and Haynes Index is four, relative humidity is in the forties, or maybe even uh, we might even push it relative humidity is in the thirty Haynes Haynes Index of five, but in two days we're getting a big rainstorm. Yeah. We're going to burn some stuff because we know that in two days, it's all getting put out. Basically, you're, that rain puts a reset button to the, the fire conditions, so you have, to, you have to manage and maintain that. Um, it'd be planning ahead. It takes, it takes the proper planning to make it happen. But again, when we're talking about the benefit, it's incredible. And, and I, I, real quick, I want to talk about 
the hunting aspect of, of this, uh, of, okay, I know habitat's great. I know it's important. I know that I should be, um, you know, burning and maintaining my habitat, but please tell me in a, ha- in a, in a hunting situation, how can I improve by using prescribed fire? So when I'm thinking about hunting season, I'm, I'm going to cover, let's say, uh, the spring window. And I'm thinking turkey season, I'm thinking fawns dropping, and what a, what a burned area will do with the right amount of sunlight um, through that entire time frame, the growing season, you've got an incredible flush of vegetation. Covered that, a lot of tender growth. So turkeys would go in there naturally, forage on that, as well as now the dust, the leaf litter is gone and removed from there, and so they can scratch. Well, they don't even have to scratch. They're just picking, you know, whether it's acorns, whether it's grubs, whether it's worms, spiders, crickets, whatever it may be, it's bare ground, and they're in there foraging. So it's an incredible resource for them. It's an incredible area for them to be able to strut. You know, there's not that much tall vegetation yet, so they can strut through there, forage through there. It's an open field that's been burned. You know, that vegetation is going to quickly get to the appropriate amount of cover later into the spring for hens to be nesting and building nests in these areas. So quickly you go from removing all the vegetation and all the growth or setting it back to food, forage, strut zones. Now you're getting the benefit of nesting habitat, which then as fawns get dropped in late May, early June throughout much of the country, you've got the right cover growing rapidly to hide fawns in. I mean, that, that, that's a huge benefit from a hunting, hunting standpoint. I got great places that are going to attract turkeys. And if you're burning, your neighbors aren't, well, I know where the turkey's going to be. Yeah, too. that's what, when you said, you've talked, I guess, and you said the benefit for hunting, you took, you got the best one right there. Because <laughs> as soon as, when I you think burning, own. spring burning, I think, wow, the turkey hunt's going to be good. Turkey hunt's going to be incredible, incredible. Um, and again, if you're burning, neighbors aren't, well, you, you're going to own some turkeys. That's for sure. Hopefully he sees that and he gets on the board of burning too. Yeah, exactly. And then you'll have more turkeys down the road. It'll just it's, it's just a domino effect. And that's the thing when it comes to um, fawns. You, you've got a lot of fawns that are getting the proper cover, the adequate amount of cover that they need to be able to survive, to evade predators. And then all that additional forage is incredible um, benefit in those tender stages, those young stages for does that are lactating. Everything is healthy because you've gone back and reset and provided the right amount of cover and forage for these different game species. It's not just one benefit. You know, it doesn't just stop at, oh, fawn cover. It stops at much more than that. And if you're looking at, you know, you're, you have one or one or five food plots and the deer have been hammering them and you're like i'm having trouble growing anything this can be a huge benefit you're taking the pressure off those food plots and you're focused more on the native vegetation to where that can allow your food plots to get a head start oh easy we've seen um you know even even planting you know soybeans in smaller food plots in areas in close proximity to where we have burned and there's been a huge flush of that vegetation those soybeans do a lot better than areas that are closed campy forest with the same amount of seeding rate and the same size food plot what happens those get absolutely crushed wiped out Mm -hmm. 
basically it's just a diversion. It's, hey, there's a lot of food around here. I can forage, which deer love to do on these species, which grow along the edge. Um, and I had a high, high volume of them because they're everywhere. Because you're burning many, many acres at one time. Yeah. I think of, uh, and, and that's why there's an importance of breaking it up into different fire units. So at some point during every year, you have a unit that's getting burned. Oh, That's yeah. the unit you turkey hunt in. If you, Let's just say it is timber and you're burning it in the spring. That's the unit you're going to turkey hunt in. And then that's going to have the flush of green growth, and it's mm-hmm. going to provide plenty of forage or a, a, a significant amount of forage for the other wildlife, especially deer. And then that turns goes in, as it matures, it goes into cover. And then the next year, as that gets a little, I guess it's not as beneficial, or it's it's not nearly as not nearly as amount of forage. Then the next year, you burn another area. And you just on this three-year cycle to where every three years it gets burned or every four years it gets burned. And there's always something burned and there's different stages of growth. And uh, and it's not like those areas that you don't burn are just bleh that next yeah. year. There's a lot of, a lot of um, annuals that will come back and there's a flush of new stuff right there because it's early succession. Like mm-hmm. it produced seed last year when it was the most is growing the most vigorously. It produced seed now it's re-sprouting, regrowing um during the this growing season because of that that resurgence, that reset. And button. that's when you see more of the shrubby two year, three year yeah. growth. You see more shrubby type stuff to where it's it's maybe not as beneficial on the forage side, but more in the cover side. Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, and that's the huge benefit to that whole thing. And being in a three year cycle, even though it's shrubby or it's saplings, um, there's little groves of plums, and you're like, okay, it's getting a little bit rank, as they say. In three years, on the three year cycle, it gets knocked Whoop. back. Reset button pushed. Buzz cut. Now it's back to the really beneficial on the forage side as it transforms into the cover side. And so, so on and so forth. If you can get your property set up in a fashion that you have this constant rotation, this constant, you know, setback, this buzz cut, this prescribed fire, you, you, you're in the upper category of habitat property maintenance management, and you're getting somewhere. You're seeing huge impacts. Because you're you're involving your entire property, not just you know food plot acres or not just a small area of TSI. You are doing things right and in a fashion that you're going to see incredible increases, whether it's you know the health of animals, whether it's the number of animals, whether it's the quality of them. This is where that all that really pays off. If you can get into these areas that are incredibly beneficial. Um, and, and do it in a rotation and in a manner that every year you are hitting that reset button. For sure. I think our email just came through. Sounds like. <laughs> anyway, um, and then, yes, exactly. You, you hit the nail on the head with that. Um, I just, it's, it's so beneficial in so many ways. Um, and I know it's another podcast, but so we can hook them for the next time we talk Ooh. about fire. That's just one of the, and we just talked about fire on the landscape. Now we could talk about for future episodes, different times of the fire help stimulate different species of growth. Oh, and so it, it gets that detailed. It's not just a matter of dropping a match. It's I'm going to drop a match. 
now because I've got too much grass in an area. I want to I want to increase the amount of forbs. So the basically we're looking at non-growing season burns and growing season burns. Burns from January, February, March versus burns in July, August, September, and how one stimulates grasses, one helps stimulate forbs, um, and and then different times of early in the growing season versus late in the growing season help stimulate different types of forbs versus other types of forbs. And then you mix in, sorry, but it's going to come mix in grazing during mm-hmm. different times of the year can also stimulate other types of forbs or grasses. And that's the whole intricate part of why there was huge amounts of diversity in the Great Plains was there was fire during different times, whether it was a lightning strike and growing season whether it got grazed by the buffalo during it early in the summer or late in the summer. And that's how we got so many diverse species growing you, in one you've, area. You've likely heard us use the phrase of nature loves chaos. That is consistent, constant, but different forms of chaos that the landscape would naturally endure, but it naturally heals itself and lends itself to benefiting many different species because it's enduring and and basically experiencing so many different types of growth at different periods. When you do that, when your property's operating like that, woo-wee. Oh, and that's what we're Pat yourself for. on the back. That's why they're going to have to follow along for years to come as that's we it. transform Prairie Hollow property and my home farm into replicating this. Yes, Yes, so. and and hopefully it's just further encouraging you to get out there and do something about it. Amen, amen. That's where I'm. I just, I hopefully at the end of the day, it's not about for us in this podcast and and the videos and the future videos is not about really. Uh, yes, we want to help you grow bigger deer and and harvest more deer and get more people involved. But at the end of it, we just want to help improve the landscape not just for ourselves to enjoy but for future generations to enjoy bingo and that's what it's all about let's leave it better than we found it mm-hmm. and i and i i i want everyone to to think about this tool because there's so many different tools in a tool uh, in a habitat manager's toolbox but if you know someone who's been thinking about prescribed fire share this with them if you know someone who needs prescribed fire on a property they own, share this with someone. If you know you're going to go hunt public land that experiences prescribed fire, or you're going to have a, a, a couple buddies that go out and, and do this, share it with them. Let people be educated on prescribed fire and what it can do, because we've gone through so many years of everyone being fearful of, of fire of, of any degree. We need to educate people on the benefits of it, of wise management, wise use of this tool, because like we've shared, it's incredible. If and, you know and somebody in need, if the you know somebody that's need. burning closed canopy forest and they're and they're they think they're doing a huge amount of good and you want to help them or you hunt on that property, share this with them. Bingo. So, yes. You got yes. any more thoughts? Um, I think we're over an hour, but I think who knows? So. so. I just want to say, Sportsman's Nation, kicking butt. Share it with people. Let them know all the other podcasts out there that they can listen to and gain access to through one source. Happy New Year, too. Like them on the f- yeah. It will be. It'll be January second when this yep. releases. Hopefully, you've had a great 
Christmas Merry season. Christmas and a Happy New Year, and 2018 is your best year yet. Let's um, kick it in the habitat management world. That's that's what I want to see. I would, Woo. yes, Woo. absolutely. Woo. So anyway, that pretty well wraps us up this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Share it with your friends, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering on the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.